Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 18, the Neat, Tidy, Acceptable Masterpiece Edition. I'm Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve. This week, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune joins us to talk a little bit about our favorite cinematic provocateur, Lars von Trier. Then we'll do a little preview of our summer movie preview, which is a whole lot of preview. But here's a preview of the pre-preview. It's terrific. We're super excited about the next four months of movies. Sadly, technical problems prevented us from recording a game this week, but since the first two segments ran long, we'll go straight from them to our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. Danish provocateur Lars von Trier is having a big year with his 2003 film The Five Obstructions returning to DVD, his 1996 breakthrough Breaking the Waves being released on Blu-ray by Criterion, and The Four-Hour Nymphomaniac coming out in two volumes to theaters and VOD. In a way, every new Von Trier film tells us more about his psyche, since his film so consistently explores personal demons. But at the same time, he's explored the same themes over and over to such depths that his movies sometimes feel more like splitting hairs than like covering new ground. On a recent episode of Film Spotting, one of our favorite podcasts about film, Chicago Tribune critic Michael Phillips said Von Trier is and always will be a 14-year-old at heart, and that he's the most clearly divided, interesting filmmaker in world cinema right now. So we asked Michael to come in and help us mull over Von Trier's career. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast. Thank you. It's uh, it's glamorous to be here. <laughs> yes, this this is a very glamorous oh, room. Yeah. Also sitting in with us is film editor Scott Tobias. Oh, yeah, I'm here. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Great. Scott is uh, rather ill and yeah. maybe in a really good frame of mind yeah, if to discuss uh, Von Trier's work. There's snow on the ground right now. Snow. <laughs> so we're we're just saying that like the, the torturous experience of being here at work for Scott is like the torturous oh, experience yeah. of sitting through a Lars Von Trier film. No, no. That's pure pleasure. <laughs> Is it pure pleasure? Not well, for me, but I'm a sicko, but go ahead. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, for me, at least, Von Trier's films, like, I, I look forward to them because they're always an experience, because he's, he's such a staggering filmmaker in so many ways. I know when I see one of his films, I'm going to have an emotional experience. I'm not going to be bored. At the same time, they're almost always grueling. They're almost always torturous in some ways to sit through, unless you're Scott Tobias who's currently making the what are you talking about face because he has no you know empathy or emotional attachment to people i mean do you what, what do you when when a new Lars von Trier film comes out michael i mean do you do you get excited or do you think oh boy here we go again uh i'm filled with dread and wonder you know hmm. uh, uh in advance and um I, I think it's almost impossible to tell depending on what stylistic terrain he's working in, in, in that particular project. It's impossible to tell how effective or ineffective or enraging or just exasperating it's going to be. Um, you look at something like Dogville and Manderley, which followed it, and Dogville, which is, to me, almost wholly effective in its brutal, stripped-down, R-town sort of aesthetic, and Manderley, which is almost complete horseshit, you know? So, <laughs> I, um, uh, Nymphomaniac, part of, and, and, and I, I, I have to thank you, uh, since uh, in the spirit of a Lars von Trier psychodrama confessional, I, I would like to say that uh, that that uh, that film spotting podcast was semi disastrous for me because I had not had a chance to to see the entire second part of that before going into it and we owned up to it of course mm -hmm. but you know I had like horrible um, streaming issues with my ancient laptop and uh, which dates from the late. 18th century, actually, the laptop. And, um, 
you know, ye, ye old laptop, ye old laptop, carved and, uh, out of fine ivory. I, I, didn't stone. Have an, I didn't have, I didn't have enough coins to kind of keep the steam powered <laughs> thing going. It was like a heater in England, and um, uh, it was just it was a tough it was a tough thing to talk about having seen three quarters of two two movies, ridiculous. And I still don't know what to make of Nymphomaniac Part One and Two, frankly, except this that whatever the first part is, I think it's essentially provocative and arresting and and just just good enough to kind of justify everything he's up to and part two just slowly undoes all that and i've had that experience with von Trier before in in that i think his recent masterpiece out of the maybe the last half a dozen is antichrist only for the first half mm-hmm. and i think the i think the at the point in the midpoint of that film where it starts getting outlandishly explicit about uh, not just what you're seeing on screen in terms of genital mutilation and <laughs> and just cruelty beyond uh, previously known cinematic imaginings but it just it just when it gets more explicit in terms of hammering down its themes um, he starts just sort of playing into the punk side of him and he's always going to have it but uh, as i say maybe the 14 year old and but you know at, at the same time he's a he's a an exquisite filmmaker, and he usually finds the right way to approach the material. Now, um, you know, so I'm all over the map on the guy, but yeah, every every new one is worth wrestling with. Scott rebuttal pro genital <laughs> mutilation stance. Uh, well, I don't think I'm, I'm anti genital mutilation, but uh, uh, you know, I, I really like Antichrist. I was actually ex- t- expecting you to t- talk about Melancholia, which I, it seems to be the Lars von Trier people uh, movie that, for people who the, don't really like the, Lars no, von no, no, I like movies. him more than that. I, I mean, that's the neat, tidy, uh, uh, acceptable masterpiece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm glad you because I, I really like Antichrist. But the thing is, that the thing about those. Those two movies and *Nymphomaniac*, of which I've only seen the first half, so I, I guess I'm feeling pretty good about it. Things go, <laughs> things maybe go awry in the second part of it, but um, um, they they all feel um, they feel cohesive. Those three. I mean, I, I kind of wanted to dispute your premise about uh, in the intro about uh, his movies, you know, being pretty much the same. Because of course you do. Yes, of course I do. Because I because I feel I actually feel like his his career has these sort of discrete. Phases and little trilogies and things that that were you know were breaking the waves, which I just saw again recently, doesn't have a whole lot to do with what he's trying to do with these last three films, which are so much about him in a way that that breaking the waves isn't. I mean, it's they're about his depression and his loneliness and these other themes that that um, you know they feel really personal. Uh, you know, I mean, *Nymphomaniac* just seems to me like a case of of a filmmaker who's like this is this whole this whole movie is just going to be a repository. Of all the shit that's going on in my head right now, mm. and and whatever whatever length it is, whatever form it takes, that's what it's going to be. Which is why you have this unwieldy, you know, four hour version. Then you have a five and a half hour version, which is his preferred cut, which we haven't seen. Any, it, we, hopefully, we'll see at some point. But uh, yeah, but but in any case, there, there was no real thought necessarily. There's a rawness to to the conceit there, and a rawness to the experience that I really like. Whereas whereas I, something like a melancholia is. Much more structured and, and, and sustained, and very you know cinematically beautiful and, and yeah. I think the thing that sets melancholy apart, and I like to hear what Tasha's got to say about this, is that I mean, there's just less sexual degradation for the female protagonist going on. Yeah, there's different kinds of degradation, but also kind of different kinds of. It's almost like she's in you know. I mean, the, the premise being she's ennobled by her own exquisite depression, and then she's the only one who kind of sees the end of the world clearly. Um, I mean, you can argue with that premise or not, but the film. I interviewed Von Trier when he right after he got kicked out of the Cannes Film Festival for all the you know the the Nazi jokes he was making around the Melancholia premiere, uh, and he he may have been in a state at that point, 
but um, he he was very hard on melancholia. I think he didn't like the fact that it was received well. He didn't like the, he didn't like he said it's all it's too easy, it's too pretty, you know. It's a very you know it's and he's he's um, he's interestingly self-critical, and, yeah. and I, I I find that kind of a, a redeeming factor with him. I, I think it's uh, that film to me is. I mean, breaking the waves to me is just is just kind of one of the sexual degradation tetralogies or whatever he's doing. Because <laughs> I mean, he's done. I mean, he does have the one predictable one of the f- predictable aspects of that guy as a filmmaker. I think is that you just simply get um, uh, in a society's viewpoint crime usually from the female protagonist and then punishment, which is meted out in ways that essentially grind that protagonist to dust by the end and I think that's that that can be compelling and sort of uh, you know sickly absorbing and 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 at at its best there's more going on and I just saw Breaking Waves again hadn't seen that since 96 and that film I think is is, that may be one of his two or three best oh absolutely and there's there's just something about form and content there there's something about Emily Watson being so much the right actress for that Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that that's a more humane picture than he ever made since and I think he he almost resented the fact that it came out that way I I mean it's fascinating the idea that he (laughs) he was angry because people received his film well or he was disappointed (laughs) because people received his film well but that's a whole other issue to sort of speak to your question about uh, like how I relate to what he does in part I find his uh, his compulsion to destroy his female protagonists pretty exhausting, um, right. you know, exhausting and grueling. At the same time, one of the things I find interesting about his films is he does female characters in more depth and with more interest for what's going on in their psyches, for who they are as people, what they come out of as, as backgrounds, than just about anybody else out there. And in an American cinema where 90% of films seem to fail the Bechdel test and where women are so often presented as trophies or objects or mm-hmm. enablers or facilitators or background, he foregrounds the female experience. Granted, he foregrounds the female experience so he can kind of reify it and uh, put women up on pedestals and then bring them down and talk about sort of how destructive and exploitative and miserable the world is and I do get tired of that's when I talk about splitting hairs covering the same ground over and over that's kind of what I'm talking about but what I want to get into I I was really fascinated by your statement that his self-criticism is a redeeming factor in some way (laughs) I mean it seems to me that that's just part of his he's always been a depressive he's always been very self-critical he's always been very self-hating and how that like a assists his aesthetic or how that uh, in any way justifies what he does I like I personally don't see it I'm curious what you mean by well, that well okay I, I, well A I don't, I don't equate self-criticism with uh, necessarily a link to any kind of dep- de- depressive gene or anything although he's certainly fought with God knows he's acknowledged his own like deep deep, deep depressions and antichrist is I mean you want to talk about right. as you say Scott I mean a cry, a cry from the soul that guy was working through the worst stuff of his life during anti Antichrist. And um, I think what happens with the, maybe this is one through line you can 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 pull through all the movies. Um, th- that that sort of self critical uh, aspect of his of his artist's temperament keeps the movies, even when they're kind of grinding, grinding, grinding down on the female protagonist and and engineering what little story there is so that the forces of societal hypocrisy are punishing her, punishing her, punishing her, right? 
there's something in that uh, that self-critical aspect of his psyche that keeps the movies more surprising, even though the narrative line is is predictable. Uh, you know, it's it's the style, it's the fact that he's adapted the dogma style to just simply uh, work in kind of a you know loose, handheld, very kind of observant way. And this is why I think. Uh, the movies really dart here and there visually and just catch fragments of people's reactions, usually the, usually whoever's playing the female protagonist. We get a full sense of what the suffering means to th- these people, and that's what I really got from seeing Breaking the Waves again. I get that from Charlotte Gainsbourg, too. I'm not putting this particularly well, but, but, but Charlotte Gainsbourg, I think, is very good in these uh, reflective moments before the next storm. And that's, that's, and Von Trier is, is enough of a filmmaker to know that without those transitional moments where you're really getting behind somebody's eyes or um, f- trying to figure out how they're going to really respond and endure the next round of pain, <laughs> you know. Uh, if you have actresses on the order of Emily Watson and Charlotte Gainsbourg, you're getting what feels like a dimensional portrait of human suffering. Mm. And um, so that is constantly at war with this sort of adolescent prankster instinct. I think the real Von Trier, as you pointed out to me, Tasha, when you suggested I see one of the films I hadn't seen of his, The Five Obstructions, fantastic, is that's where you, that's where you really see what goes through his sort of satanic sense of humor <laughs> when he's setting up these crazy, crazy kind of premise for, for remaking a 12-minute short film that he admires. Now, can you talk me through some of that? Just like, like Well, I mean, The Five Obstructions is possibly my favorite Von Trier movie, even <laughs> though it doesn't, it doesn't have any of the like the fantastically beautiful cinematography or like the deep soul pain and the incredible character building that I look for in his films. It's a documentary where he sits down with uh, Jordan Lath, one of his uh, filmmaking idols and points him at a, I think it's a 1967 short that he made um, the perfect human and says, I I want you to remake this, but I'm going to throw up obstacles in your way. You have to do, and I don't want to spoil any of them because that's the fun of the movie. You have to remake this movie under this, this set of circumstances and he, he goes away and does it and comes back and we see the results and then he says okay now you have to go back and do it under this other set of circumstances and malicious completely malicious you know <laughs> well, especially <laughs> the last one the last one is just beyond the pale ridiculous as far as I'm concerned but I mean it really like this is for me at least the Von Trier of the Dogma 95 movement the the guy who's saying Art is created under art. Art is more interesting when it's created under limitations. When you have obstructions in your way, and I kind of feel like his his depression and his obsession with certain themes and his desire to do the difficult thing and his desire to get in people's faces and give them things that are uncomfortable are all kind of obstructions that maybe he didn't put deliberately in his own way, but that he's had to deal with throughout his career. And sort of one of the interesting kind of meta things, I know Scott hates it when we talk about uh, things outside the work itself, but I just, I don't think, see how you can avoid it with him because so much of his filmmaking is about the obstructions he's either consciously or unconsciously. Or what if they impact the film? Of course you would talk about it though. If you're talking about something but like dogma. But they always dogma. impact the film. If you're talking Scott. about dogma, if they're talking about an explicit set of rules that they're, that they're having to operate under, I think you definitely have to talk about that. That's not, I, I, you know, that's not what I talk about when I well that's okay that's a whole nother issue because I would argue that all things are that thing okay so here's here's one question for me Uh, do you think there's a correlation between how 
sexually and just sort of physically violently explicit von Trier's work is and the and the acceleration or deceleration of quality. Hmm. I mean, that's my question coming off things like Antichrist and, and Nymphomaniac. And I'm not, frankly, not sure how to answer that because I, I as I say, I respond 100% to the first, I, I think the first hour of Antichrist is just brilliant. And I just think, uh, uh, you know, I re-seeing Breaking the Waves when you see how it's, it's, it's quite explicit in some ways, but there are moments where you don't see the worst of what happens to her, say, the last time she visits that oil rig. You don't. You just simply see the results. And I, I wonder if sometimes Von Trier equates tact with cowardice. You know? Do you know what I mean? No, I think that's a really good point, actually. Uh, one thing that I meant tied to it that I wanted to mention before is that really Von Trier, the key, the key, the key person Von Trier is, is dealing with, and I think in, in his work is is Carl Dreyer, his his countryman who made hmm. the Passion of Joan of Arc and or, or Debt and films like that. You know, Passion of Joan of Arc is the ultimate film about female self, self sacrifice and about and persecution and about and and it's a, and even though there's, it's not you know sexually explicit, um, you know you do feel that sense of violation as 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 this heroine is being tormented uh, by by her these these dudes these per, who persecute her um, and uh, you know something like breaking the waves and you know the movie like that I mean that's about about a, a, a heroine who's purely good mm. it's about what happens to that goodness when it when it is put out into, into a world that is not good that is that is full of cruelty and uh, and how does that how does she survive that and, and transcend that ultimately I mean that's a, that's kind of a, a journey that that characters kind of go on too I mean even to a point uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg and Nymphomaniac is like there is this quest, if not for transcendence, it, 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 there is a quest to feel something, right. you know, to, to kind of, um, uh, you know, have some have some meaning to to her life. I mean, in a way, it's, I mean, his films have darkened quite a bit over time. You think about think about I mean, Breaking the Waves is actually quite an optimistic. Uh, film. It is, it is, it is. Uh, I think in Nymphomania, she's basically trying to fillet her way to wisdom, and I'm not sure that's, you know, I mean, I mean, that's, that's again, that's sort of a 14, you know, a sophisticated 14-year-old's view view of women in the world, but, but uh, anyway, yeah. No, no, well, may, maybe so, but, uh, but I think that's, that's the legacy he's trying to, that he's, he's working under, I think, is that, is, is Carl Dreyer, uh, and, yeah. and that's kind of the prism through which I, I view much of his work, not all of it, but much of it. So does that answer the question? I mean, in terms of uh, the explicitness and, and the violence of his films having effect on his uh, on his quality. Oh well, probably not. I mean, that, that's that, that's another. That, that's about quality. I mean, I, no, I, I don't. I don't feel like. I don't feel like that they have a negative impact. I don't have the same reaction that, that Michael has in terms of the films, kind of like whatever falling apart or something. If they have to be explicit, but I think the or point, just becoming becoming kind point, of benumbing. That's, that's right. Sort of but thing, I mean, yeah. I, but I think the point the point about tact about tact tact and cowardice that you make is is a good one uh, for sure. Um, I, I, that's probably. That seems about right. <laughs> I mean, I think over time they've become numbing. I, I think I've come to the point where when I walk into one of his films, I'm expecting to see something intense and I'm emotionally bracing myself and distancing myself from it. Right. Like, I don't feel like I had the reaction to Nymphomaniac that you had in part because I just, I went in with my armor on uh, because I think it's kind of necessary at this point. But I feel like his, like the violence, both physical and emotional of his films is so intrinsically tied into what he's doing mm -hmm. that I can't see it as a, like as a downside or as a, a problem. I mean, it is, 
is what it is. It is. It's what he's doing. Well, I don't think the work is ever inert. Even things like Manderley, which is an experiment that I think is just ridiculous and just you know the, the cruelty in it is just insane. And, you know, but but even though you look at the first part of the first part of Nymphomaniac, that's 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 a film wonderfully at odds with itself. I mean, I mean, half of that film is this tidy, well-made two-character play in a series of completely you know kind of classically built conversational scenes and and you know wonderful actors. It was still in Skarsgård and Charlotte Gainsbourg, and then and it's all you know kind of you know hacked up by by all the experiences you're seeing in flashback that that really get at the unruly side of Von Trier, and you know that that film is is pretty stimulating in the in the in its stew, I think, and I think this in the second half it's just more that he he has to see his thesis through, and sometimes I think the thesis feels more predictable than it should just about what what that's that's what that's what they get you know that that's what they get in this world that's what women get in this world for transgressing and i don't know if he's got much more to say beyond that um i'm never less than interested i'm rarely less than interested while it's happening and i just this question how much you kind of take home with you afterwards i guess well honestly um i'm kind of with you on that i i do wonder where how much more he 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 can explore these same ideas and where he's going but i guess we're going to find out and as always i'm going to be interested like whatever it is he does next i'll i'll be there for same it's your job, for goodness sakes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but it, it is sort of it is sort of the uh, the intellectual and emotional pleasure too, just to f- find out where you where you're gonna where you're gonna and how you're gonna relate to the next provocation. How right? the hell are you gonna one up yourself on this one, Lars? <laughs> Thanks for coming in, Michael. It's Thank always you. good to talk to you. Thanks, Tasha, Scott. Uh, yes, indeed, good to talk to you, Michael. Michael Phillips is the house critic at the Chicago Tribune. Michael, where else can people find your work? Where can they find you online? Uh, ChicagoTribune.com/slash/movies and once a month on Film Spot. Usually, <laughs> and you're on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Twitter uh, at uh, Phillips Tribune. Terrific. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Starting April 28th, we'll be running our summer movie preview, which individually rates our personal anticipation levels for dozens of films coming up from May to August 2014. But given that our highly scientific and mathematical process averages out all of our anticipation scores for films into one summarizing number, some of our strongest individual opinions may get lost in the math. So as a little pregame, we thought we'd talk briefly about some of our personal most anticipated films of the summer. Here to pick a few winners and a few maybe not so much winners are... Oh, Scott Tobias. Nathan Raven. So guys, uh, we're going to do this as a blitz since we ran long on Lars von Trier. Um, Short, quick, and to the point. Most anticipated major studio release of the summer. Scott, go. Okay. I just ran long on Lars von Trier. (laughs) That's what she said. Anyway. (laughs) um, All right. uh, I'm going to focus. My most anticipated major studio film of the year. Uh, I guess I, I the summer I guess maybe twenty two Jump Street uh, I feel like is a pretty pretty good bet. Uh, this is uh, this is Chris Miller and Phil Lord. Uh, they're on a roll. I thought that twenty one Jump Street was a, a pretty miraculous uh, and extremely smartly conceived uh, movie in which in which uh, you know uh, there was that awareness that you could not that it was it was incredibly stupid to make a uh, to make a twenty one Jump Street movie and so they made some meta twenty one Jump Street movie and this seems to be a continuation. of that i uh, enjoy the chemistry between uh jonah hill and uh Ch- and and channing tatum uh, the big brisket and uh and uh and, it had to come out and i think it's i think it's going to be a solid uh winner along with uh you know I've, I've already seen neighbors and since it's screened at south by southwest i can actually 
articulate the fact that it is good and funny. So maybe this is going to be a good summer for comedy. You know, I, I'm really curious about 22 Jump Street because it seemed like 21 Jump Street was such a surprise and part of its appeal was in the surprise of it's better than it should have been. It's better than we were expecting it to be. So I am sort of wondering if it uh, the next one coming up, the expectations will be a little higher and thus the execution will necessarily be lower. But we try not to judge by ante- anticipation. Speaking of anticipation, Nathan, what's your most anticipated major studio release of the, the summer? Uh, the big blockbustery uh, major studio release that I am most excited about this summer is a motion picture entitled Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> uh, which is a movie uh, about superheroes, I guess. From I believe there's a raccoon space. in it that maybe wears people is, clothes. There is there is a raccoon, a space raccoon in it that wears people clothes and that talks like people, and I guess is voiced by the actor Bradley Cooper. So I'm very very excited about that. Um, it's directed by James Gunn, who is a very strange, uh, very idiosyncratic uh, filmmaker, probably best known for writing the screenplay for Dawn of the Dead. Um, but his last film uh, was a film called Special. Uh, no, it was special not. super. Super? super special, yes, yeah, super. So special was the other superhero super? superhero movie with Michael Rappaport. Uh, That's true. Although super, super is the one with Rain Wilson. Although technically speaking, I believe James Gunn also wrote the specials, uh, which was also a super uh, hero movie of a different vein. Uh, and his last one, actually, you know, sort of the most memorable sequence in it involved uh, Ellen Page raping. Uh, Rain Wilson. So it's very, very strange, very strange, very dark movie. So it's very bewildering and kind of exciting and weird that uh, somebody gave a guy like James Gunn uh, $200 million uh, to make a movie. Uh, Chris Pratt uh, is one of the stars of it. Uh, Vin Diesel, uh, I-, I believe, portrays some sort of tree, uh, which is kind of the role that he was born to play. He will also a, be playing a CGI, himself. A sentient CGI alien tree. Let's, yes, let's exactly. Yes, an alien. So I think uh, I'm very, very excited about this movie. Uh, I have no idea whether it'd be good or not, but uh, it is the film that I'm most, most, uh, most geeked for. But the CGI sentient alien tree does not wear people clothes. <laughs> can, I, can I change my choice now? <laughs> I hate to be the one to let you down. So you know, duh, he's so, a tree. Why would he wear people clothes? You're so fond of that phrase, a space yes. raccoon who wears people clothes. Yes. Has it occurred to you that if those were actually people clothes, it would be a very small and oddly <laughs> shaped person? Well, that's uh, Mickey Rooney was up for the role. Oh. Uh, and he was, again, he was willing to just, you know, slip inside the raccoon costume. And they tried to explain the concept of CGI to him. He died. It's a very sad story. It casts kind of a bell over this movie, Guardian of the Galaxy. And here I thought it was just going to be a fun romp through space. I know. It's, it's, it, even, even at the end, it was sad. It was bittersweet for old Mickey. Okay, so my uh, personal uh, film, major uh, studio release that I'm most excited about is perhaps very predictably How to Train Your Dragon 2. Um, that first teaser trailer, I, there was just, there's such a joy to it and and such a leisurely exploration of an emotion. Um, it just feels to me like it, it transcends what I'm used to seeing in pretty much non-Pixar uh, CGI animated films. I really enjoyed the first one. It was, a, a, again, an immense surprise to me, kind of like uh, 21 Jump Street. So there is always the possibility that the second one will be a letdown simply because it won't have that uh, transcending the expectations kind of quality to it. But it's the same director, and uh, the director of the first How to Train Your Dragon, uh, Dean 
Dublois, Dublois, I'm not sure how his name is pronounced, but uh, also the director of Lilo and Stitch. Very good with comedy, very good with staging action, um, and very good with putting together a just like emotional moments that play really well on screen. Um, I liked these characters the first time around. I found them very endearing. But for me, what was what was intrinsically interesting about the film is how it handles these, at this point, very familiar CGI film beats of disappointment with family, uh, family being broken apart, newfound family, creating family, creating emotions, creating uh, a situation where everything that you've been disappointed by in life can finally pay off. And by the way, big CGI action. So it, it is a very familiar template, but it was just, it was executed so well. The second one looks like it's going to pull in a lot more sort of busyness and a lot more characters and a lot more action. So I'm very slightly dubious, but I'm trying to just go in without either too high expectations or too much cynicism and just enjoy it and hope that it brings across that energy from the first teaser trailer. Okay. I, I, I thought though we kind of learned how to train the dragon. <laughs> <laughs> there are, there are depths. It's like, just because you've trained your dog to shake hands does not mean you are done training your dog. There are that's so true. many things you could uh, be <laughs> training your dog to yeah, roll over, true. to sit that's or well, to that, become a superstar. Yeah. Like in, uh, in Matthew Deathum's piece where he was trying to uh, get his dog to become a superstar unsuccessfully. Well, I suspect that the first hour will be just explaining that they've forgotten how to train the dragon <laughs> and then saying the second uh, act will be like, we need to relearn how to train the dragon. Training the your third dragon. act will be the, the, the re-dragoning, the re-learning. The re-learning, yeah. The yeah, re-learning. There, there will be more sequels. Training your dragon is a lifelong process, Scott. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Okay, so uh, second round. Yeah. Scott, what is your Hit most me. anticipated uh, like indie or minor studio release? Of the well, summer? there's just there's so many this summer, so so many uh, from Night Moves to We Are the Best to Boyhood, etc. The one I'm going to focus on is Snowpiercer, which is a new film by Bong Joon Ho, who's a, a really brilliant Korean director. He did the he did the host uh, Mother, uh, Memories of Murder. Uh, this is one, a film that kind of got hung up. Uh, because the Weinsteins are putting it out, but it's uh, they wanted a shorter cut of the film, and for once they they, they did not prevail. Uh, the director the the director's version is the version that we're going to see in theaters, and it's a really interesting premise about about uh, this technology that that ultimately causes sort of a new ice age, and everyone who's alive is on this train called the Snowpiercer, <laughs> and the, the train is is very sharply divided by class, and there's a lot of a lot of uh, you know, excitement uh, involved in warfare and, and uh, involved in that. And he's just somebody uh, who's just got incredible uh, filmmaking skill. I mean, the host, if you've seen the host, it's, it's very Spielbergian. Um, and uh, he, he's also somebody who's not afraid to kind of mix tones uh, r- sort of dramatically, kind of, go, kind of go back and forth between between comedy and action and melodrama and not really uh, try to draw too uh, sharp a line between any of those things. Um, and I just think he's a tremendously exciting filmmaker, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. So after the months and months and months of uh, controversy and, and hair-pulling and clothes-rending over this movie, you don't feel like you've already seen it? Nope. Uh, nope, it's a big mystery to me. I'm excited for this one, too. Nathan, what's your most uh, anticipated indie or small studio release for the summer? Uh, my most anticipated indie or small movie for the summer is a movie uh, directed uh, by David Wayne, uh, co-written by David Wayne and Michael Showalter, uh, called They Came Together, which is a uh, sort of a very meta uh, parody of romantic comedies uh, starring Mr. Paul Rudd, the eternally uh, handsome and charming Paul Rudd, uh, and Amy Poehler. Uh, and yeah, it just seems like a really, really brilliant idea uh, for a movie, and I feel like 
I have such faith uh, in David Wayne uh, and Michael Showalter. Perhaps more faith than their filmography. Uh, <laughs> I would recommend because I think about like Wanderlust uh, from I believe two years ago, which is a movie that I, I, I sort of liked that had a wonderful idea, wonderful uh, premise, wonderful cast, and was 85% of the way there. Um, so I'm hoping that they came together, which likewise has a brilliant premise uh, and a brilliant cast. Uh, and David Wayne and Showalter working together, you know, they did uh, Wet Hot American Summer. They go back to like the state and Stella and they've got a good groove. So I'm hoping that uh, with this one, they, they go 100%. Huh, maybe this will be a good I'm summer really for stoked. comedy. Yeah, yeah really that this will be excited. like the role models or a Wet Hot American and I really, Summer. I'm, like, I'm a Wanderlust fan myself. So, yeah, so and there's a bunch of two where it's like, I need to go back and re-see it, and maybe I will love it yeah. the second time around. God, the mirror scene in that is just most. Oh, that is that is a brilliant scene. And, and Paul Rudd, like you, yeah. you cannot yeah. go wrong no. with David Wayne and Paul Rudd working together. Doesn't it really feel like we've? It's been a long time since we've had a good summer for comedy, as opposed to a summer with a good comedy in it. Well, I think we're always pleasantly surprised uh, <laughs> when there are good comedies. Like, hey, this was a mainstream comedy that wasn't terrible. Mm. Uh, so maybe that's part of it is we're and also I, you know, I think like this is the end. The uh, you know the that was um, a fun one. Yeah, or Twenty One Jump Street. It's like again because we have such low expectations. We're like, hey, hey, there's actually something to these movies. Uh, so yeah, God, I hope I hope this is a good a good uh, good summer for comedy. We can always hope. Um, my uh, most anticipated small or indie uh, movie is not a comedy, so it's probably not going to contribute. And in fact, I have no idea whether it's going to be good. Um, it's a movie I was not aware of until we started assembling this piece called Belle. Um, it's about a, a young mixed-race woman in uh, Georgian England who is the uh, illegitimate daughter of a uh, Navy captain. And the the trailer mostly just intrigued me because it's it's very much dealing with questions of race. He brings her back to his family and says, this is my daughter. I want her acknowledged. I want her raised here um, as an aristocrat. And they say, but she's black. And then the whole rest of the film, as it, as it plays out, it seems, is about how they relate to somebody that's of their social status but not of their exact skin color. Um, with the young woman complaining as she gets older that she's considered too uh, upper class to eat with the servants. She's considered too lower class to eat with her whole family. She doesn't fit in anywhere. And this is an entirely, it, it's a based on a true story uh, film that's actually based on a painting. Mm -hmm. Literally a, an image of this woman in the background of a painting of an aristocratic woman. So it, it's made up out of whole cloth and it certainly has the elements of, you know, this could be a very artificial and uh, false uplift feeling and like mouthing the right words about race and racism kind of movie or it could be something better mostly I'm excited because it's a it's a costume drama dealing with subject I've never seen a costume drama deal with before and uh, dealing with an entire world I've never seen a costume drama deal with before so it's in part intriguing to me because it's trying to do something different it's in part intriguing to me because it's just it's such a mystery um not very experienced director uh there are a handful of uh, very familiar names in there like miranda richardson um emily watson is in the movie. and emily well emily well of course emily watson's in the movie it's a uh, it's a period piece <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. We don't see her as much as we as I'd like, anyway. That is true, but so I really have no idea what to expect, and that I think tends to build anticipation for me more than anything else. Mm -hmm. No, I, I'm looking forward too, but I'm, I'm I, I I am a little concerned about it. Uh, congratulating itself too much for being uh, um, on the right on the right side of not being horribly racist. <laughs> 
All right. Last round, Blitzkrieg lightning round. Most anticipated train wreck, most anticipated film that looks like it's either not going to be good or going to be a really interesting mess. Scott Tobias? I am intrigued by the film A Million Days, A Million Ways to Die in the West uh, by Seth MacFarlane because it's just, the trailer is so funny. I can't help myself. (laughs) I feel bad about it. I don't think I'm supposed to be liking the work of Seth MacFarlane or whatever. And I guess he's, he's, you know, he he has a, a lot of cheap jokes. It's very lowbrow. Uh, but I, I just couldn't help myself. I laughed and laughed and laughed, and I and I and I don't know if this is going to be the next Blazing Saddles or it's going to be something, uh, you know, like the last third of Ted, which was pretty bad. Uh, but um, I'm really kind of kind of guiltily excited about seeing it because I think the trailer is really funny. Well, how dare you enjoy something? I know. That you enjoy. <laughs> what you do know that you are allowed to enjoy anything you'd like. You are I the know. worst, including the comedy of Seth MacFarlane. I know, but everyone everyone was so so uh, you know offended by him and everything. And I just, I, maybe I am too. I find his work politically incorrect. I know, but it's a, it's you know it's just you know he's the least hip guy in the world to think he, think it's funny. But I think this is a, I, I, just, I think this trailer is really hilarious and. oh Scott your hipster roots are showing yeah. Nathan what is your most anticipated train wreck of summer oh it's another movie that I did not know existed until five minutes ago it's called Jupiter Ascending <laughs> this is this is from the Wachowskis um, and here is the summary according to the good people over at Wikipedia set in the future where gods rule over humans Jupiter Jones Mila Kunis is an unlucky Russian immigrant who cleans toilets for a living she encounters Kane, an interplanetary warrior whom the king of the universe sent to kill Jupiter. Cain tells Jupiter that the stars were pointing to an extraordinary event on the night she was born and that her DNA could mark her as the universe's next leader. Uh, that sounds completely insane. And even for a world in which... Just the phrase which, king of the universe. I mean, exactly. Even in a world where space raccoons wear kind of human crap going clothes, on there. I cannot get on board with an interplanetary warrior working for the king of the universe. So I'm utterly, utterly fascinated by that, in part also because that sounds just like The Matrix. Well, I urge you to take another five minutes and go watch the trailer for Jupiter Ascending, which is very, very shiny and very explodey and very... Very Wachowskis, you know. I, very, I believe it. There are the people behind, over the you know, top. the Speed Racer, and yeah, kind of making the whole world forget that they made the Matrix uh, with everything that they have but done. They, and Cloud Atlas, don't I mean, forget Cloud Atlas. That's true. That's those true. are about as intriguing as failures get, though. I would yeah, say. and yeah. I think this has total capacity to be either like a really interesting movie or just bash it insane in kind of an interesting way. Speaking of, has you never a, know with those Wachowskis. Has the capacity to be an interesting movie or bat shit insane? Um, my most anticipated uh, possible train wreck is. Tammy, the movie that uh, Melissa McCarthy and her husband Ben Falcone are making together. I have I've been thinking for years that she is underserved. Having seen her in the Nines, which Nathan and I share as uh, one of our favorite, completely underseen, everybody should watch movies. I she's a really great actress. She's really really well uh, versed in in putting across emotion and in uh, portraying a wide variety of characters. And now she's had this huge career resurgence where she's basically playing Chris Farley over and over and over. And she's great at it. She's hilarious. I love that she's had this success. I wish she was done doing something more than Fat Lady Could Fall Down, Go Boom. So this is a film that, you know, she and her husband have been doing as a labor of love. It has... 
I hope the capacity to give her like more to work with and, and let her do what she wants to be doing. But the initial teaser trailer is Fat Lady Fall Down Go Boom. And it just over and over and over, it's look at me, I'm sloppy, I'm drunk, I'm incompetent. <laughs> and it, it makes me worry. I just don't know what direction she's going with this. It seems like whatever direction she wants to take her career in, hopefully this is the opportunity. But I don't know what that direction is anymore. And I really hope it's something more sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, that sounds a little like John Candy, who on SCTV was just brilliant at playing all different kinds of characters and incredibly uh, diverse and eclectic. And then in movies, he was just the fat, dumb guy. See, who but I think out. you're all underselling what, what she's accomplished in movies. I think she's, I think she's, her primary attribute is her, her is, you know, her foul, <laughs> foul verbal uh, skills, which, which have come to come, which, have, you know, she's been, re- she was the funniest thing about this is 40. She's really funny in that Paul Feig thing with Sandra Bullock. What is that? The heat. I thought, she's uh, the hilarious heat. in bridesmaids. She, she's hilarious in bridesmaids. So, so I, I think she's actually had a pretty good run of it, save for that uh, thing with Jason. Identity Bateman. thief. All right, identity thief. I don't even know even titles that, anymore. She, she, had a, she had a dramatic moment in that that was the best thing in that movie, and that yeah. that stopped it on a dime, so she could do something deeply emotional and very effective. But I, I have to disagree with you. I don't think the best thing about her is that she can swear and no, she's funny though. Make up crude crap on the spot. No, she's she's a really talented actress with a whole lot going sure. for her and comedy is just one one knife in the uh the swiss army knife of her talent so i hope she uh i hope she does more and if she doesn't do more at least she's gonna be fine i think she's got a magnifying glass and a little tiny scissors and the whole <laughs> she's got she's got it all well i want to see her magnifying glass in this movie thanks for talking it out guys i i hope everybody enjoyed this preview of our preview of possibly another preview i've, I've lost how many previews oh, yeah. it, the whole thing is just a big preview for next summer <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a prelude to to the summer. It's actually this is all just the, the the spoiler here is actually this entire summer is just Marvel teasing Marvel's next summer. It's, <laughs> it's previews and and, and, and Samuel L. Jackson will be at the end of every movie uh, teasing the next movie. Oh look, there he is at the door. We'd better go, guys. <laughs> the Avengers need us. Okay, got a minute. If so, you have time for the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell, where we give two people 30 seconds each to convince us to take their recommendation of a film or something related to film. For an added level of competition, we make them go head-to-head and judge brutally and ruthlessly who does the best job. First up, Scott Tobias. Scott, what do you have? I'd like to sell the idea of the scene-specific commentary track. Uh, The new Criterion version of Breaking the Waves has a scene-specific commentary track where Lars von Trier, Anders Reffen, and Anthony Don Mantle offer commentary on only 47 minutes of the film's 160-minute running time. Generally, commentary tracks pop the filmmakers in front of a microphone and let them ramble on and on and on for however long their movie is. And though Criterion does an excellent job of producing them, uh, I think a shorter, more laser-focused commentary vastly increases the chances of me listening to it. Wow, okay. Well, you came in under time on that, which is appropriate for a uh, recommendation about somebody not wasting your time. That's right. You saved me three precious seconds of my life, and I thank you for that. And uh, that sounds like a pretty good argument. Genevieve, are you going to be able to beat that? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I'm recording this podcast and timing myself and talking oh, all at the wow. same time. Do I get a handicap? <laughs> well, she also is saving time, because if she was doing all of these things separately instead of serially, it would take more time. So basically, this is the Saving Me Time podcast. And I approve. Right. Speaking of saving me time, Genevieve, you have 30 seconds. Go. 
All right, there are a lot of great movie-related tumblers out there with fun little bite-sized nuggets and behind-the-scene photos of directors and stuff. Uh, but the one I want to recommend specifically today is called RecycledMovieCostumes.tumblr.com. It traces the way that costumes are reused and altered on movies and television shows. Um, it fo- each post follows a specific costume through its various iterations. It's particularly heavy on golden age and period pieces, but it's really informative, and whoever it is that's running it does a good job explaining how costumes have been altered, even just lit differently to produce a different effect in the different movies they're used on. Oh my god, that's awesome! Wow, that good was job. Amazing! Wow. So th- was that perfectly on time? You you well, I, flinched away at the last yeah, minute. Yeah, that was pretty good. I, I, I'm gonna say it was perfectly on time. Yeah. <laughs> the indicator is indicating that she was not yeah. perfectly on time. But since she's the one that puts in the obnoxious buzz noise, I suspect that there will be no obnoxious buzzing her out. All right. Well, in a very real way, uh, Scott is the winner here because he came in under time rather than overtime. But wow, that I mean, it's a hard choice because I am absolutely in favor of the um, the scene-specific uh, commentary and the idea of saying something when you have something to say as opposed mm-hmm. to being tied to a mic and forced to produce noises, which, as we all know, has produced hours and hours and hours of commentary that consists of describing what's on screen. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's awesome. But I've seen the Tumblr in question, and uh, it is really, really awesome and, and amazing. So... I, I think I'm going to give this one to Scott largely because uh, I have not already seen this thing. So this is a this is a recommendation for something that I have not personally experienced, this mm. scene-specific thing, whereas uh, your Tumblr recommendation is something that everybody else in the world should go experience, but that you are not offering new to me as <laughs> well, something boo. novel on my plate. Uh, it's new to me. I, I'd, have, I'd have given it to her. <laughs> well, you can <laughs> certainly give her the trophy, yeah. and uh, then it, it really everybody wins. Mm. Hooray sportsmanship. Yay, sports ball. Wait, that was the other segment last week. (laughs) Close enough. Well, that should do it for episode 18 of the Dissolve podcast. Episode 19 will drop two weeks from today. But in the meantime, you can find the Dissolve on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, and in website form at thedissolve.com. Questions, comments, and topic or game suggestions for the Dissolve podcast can go to feedback at thedissolve.com. We'd like to thank you for all the feedback you've been giving us at the iTunes podcast store. That really helps boost the podcast's profile online, which brings us more listeners. So if you want to help keep us going and you don't want to send us wheelbarrows full of cash, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. Thanks for listening. <laughs>